Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought today I would talk about racist clients. It's something that is of particular interest today, I guess, given the political climate and the Twitter sphere, as they call it. And I think it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. It's it's a complicated thing that really requires a lot of thought and a lot of what we call discourse, meaning that you you don't just read a book and you're good. You, you also don't just take a class and you're good. You also don't just get a couple supervision meetings and you're good. It's something that over time, through much conversation with other people, through listening, through experience, through reading, through classes, through supervision, there's a, there's, as with any complicated topic in psychotherapy, it requires ongoing discourse with the text, with the topic, with the subject. And it's something that is, uh, like I said, not talked about enough, or it's talked about so briefly that a lot of therapists are afraid to do anything, or they act in ways that they think are okay, but are actually overpowering of the client, you know, that the therapist will use their privilege to sort of force their political agenda upon the client. And so there's a lot of things to consider. And it and we live in a complicated world, although I hate when people say that I shouldn't say that I should say, we've always lived in a complicated world. And it's only recently that we've, uh, at least in the public uh, discourse, have we begin to to really look at this. I can't think of a time when racism and sexism was such a daily topic for people today. And I know people on the right get tired of hearing about it. Well, not people on the right entirely, but people that don't want to talk about racism and sexism, let's just put it that way, don't want to hear about it. But it it's something that is um, ever-present. And if we're going to change things, and we have been changing things, we're going to do that through discourse and through public discussion around these things. And so to add to that conversation, I thought I would make an episode here, uh, mainly because patron Maria wrote in and asked me to to talk about this. Uh, she writes, hi, Kirk, I'm a Caucasian cisgender woman who is an early career psychologist. I have had a couple of recent experiences where clients will make racist remarks about people of color, usually in the middle of a long diatribe about things that are upsetting them. I have failed to say anything about the comments because I've been so shocked by the remarks, but also because I do not know how to approach the situation. Race was barely de- barely sorry. Race was barely addressed in my program, and attempts to consult with other colleagues in this area have been unhelpful. It bothers me deeply that my silence may have been interpreted by these clients as agreement or normalization of their views, but I feel a bit lost on how to approach this in the context of a therapy session. Could you devote an episode to this topic? I think it would be helpful for a lot of psychologists who struggle with the same problem. End of email. Yes, it's an excellent topic, Patron Maria. Thank you for writing in. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. 
So in order to listen to this, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. If you want to hear the, the full episode and all of our other uh, patron-only episodes, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron. When you become a patron, we'll send you instructions on how to access all the secret episodes. And also know that you, as a patron, don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials if those bother you. And also remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Uh, this uh, At this time, we're supporting PetFinder.com, which, uh, or the PetFinder Foundation, I think it's formally called, which is an organization that saves pets from being euthanized and by connecting them with loving homes. I, for instance, have uh, two cats that I got through PetFinder. So, and I've had other animals through PetFinder in the past. Okay, so that is that. Go become a patron if you haven't already. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so, so much for becoming a patron. You're super cool for doing that. Uh, Okay, so patron Maria, again, just to review, she's saying she's a Caucasian cisgender woman, early, early career psychologist. Some of her clients will make racist remarks and... She doesn't say anything because she doesn't know what to say, and she was worrying that she's worried that the clients will uh, take her silence, interpret her silence as consent to what they're saying. And when and she says that in her program they didn't talk about it much, which I have to say is not entirely shocking, but is disturbing to me. And she also says that her colleagues have been unhelpful, which is not surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, For whatever reason, we're still sort of in the Bronze Age, Dark Ages. (laughs) What other metaphor era-wise can I use? We're, we're We're far behind in our profession regarding culture and awareness. Uh, some people in our profession are are doing pretty well and uh, but many are not and that's not because of individual professionals fault it's because historically in our profession we've mostly ignored issues of culture you know many are many people in general and within the profession of mental health Many people are ignorant to how culture affects people's lives, particularly people who come from privileged cultures, which is the the vast majority of mental health professionals, especially when we go back in history, have been from privileged cultures. Not all, of course, but many, many have. And so it, it hasn't been a a topic that was viscerally important to the founders of our Profession again. That's a you know pretty big generalization. There's hundreds or thousands of people, and many of which uh, come from marginalized groups. You know, women uh, to, to name one, uh, Jewish people to name two. But anyway, the point is, is that it's been ignored in our in our profession, and many people don't think it's very important even to this day. Uh, but really, that I think the if I was to just take a guess anecdotally regarding why it's not talked about enough is because many professionals in mental health are just afraid to talk about it. I I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, many mental health professionals who would say that uh, culture is not important. You know, I would say that most, most people are aware at least, at least consciously enough to, to at least outwardly say that culture is important. 
but I think the real problem is is uh, because often, especially in the public sphere, the discourse regarding culture is so fraught with uh, anger and hostility and people getting bullied, uh, people feeling bullied, people feeling attacked, that many people, including mental health professionals, will just avoid the topic. It's just like, you know, it's just easy to avoid. And And as a professional and as an educator and as a supervisor, for the past 20 plus years, I, I can absolutely attest to uh, falling into that myself. There are times when I see an opportunity to talk about culture, you know, to talk about racism or, or sexism or classism or uh, disability, marginal, marginalized people. I, I will often just avoid it because I, it's easier to avoid. There are situations where, you know, for instance, I'm, let's say I'm at a case consultation where I'm not the leader. I'm a peer in a case consultation situation. And one of my peers says something that bothers me culturally somehow. Uh, let's, just, let's just throw out a, for instance, let's, let's say I'm in an all-women uh, group and um, one of the women says something sexist about men. Well, what am I going to do in a situation like that? You know, uh, I could, the easy road, the road that will get me from A to B as fast as possible is to just say nothing and just, or even agree, even though I don't, even though I don't agree, uh, to outwardly agree with the person. And, and actually this, a situation like that is coming to mind where, you know, I was in an all women's group. It wasn't a women's group, but a lot of professionals in my profession are women. And so it's not uncommon for me to be the only man in some of these meetings. And I, you know, uh, would hear, uh, so I am remembering this one instance when this colleague of mine said something that I felt to be hurtful to me as a man. And I didn't, I did not say an effing thing. <laughs> I was just like, uh, in, inwardly, I was like steaming at what was being said, but outwardly I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> I'm just, and obviously it's burnt into my brain cause it was months ago. But, um, now, you know, again, as list patrons know, I'm not suggesting that men are marginalized more than women or even equal to women. Women are much more marginalized and women out there listening, you can, I'm sure, come up with hundreds of examples off the top of your head in which you would have experiences of being in an all group of men and men uh, saying sexist things. So it's, I'm not saying, you know, anything there, but what I'm saying is that I will absolutely not say things when I get into situations because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of not saying the right thing. I'm afraid that the context won't allow me to explain myself well enough. I'm afraid the other people won't listen to me. I'm afraid that even if the other people do listen to me, they'll walk away saying that I am a sexist or overreacting or whatever, or I'm a baby or something. There's a lot of traumas that we've all been through regarding this and a lot of precedent regarding culture. Uh, You know, we're in our culture, we have a precedent about how to discuss culture, which is 
uh, often in the context of hostility and of trauma. And so, so, you know, there's a reason why patron Maria says, uh, my, my program didn't talk about it much and my colleagues aren't much help. Well, you know, there's a reason for that. And the only way we're going to change that is if we start talking about it. And, uh, well, I should say two things. The only way we're going to change that is one, if we stop, if we start talking about it and two is when we are talking about it, we do not shut the conversation down with our, uh, feelings. Um, now that's, you know, it depends on the situation, but it, whenever we enter into conversations about culture, we have to try our best to be as polite as possible to other people and, and give people the benefit of the doubt. What I mean by that is a lot of times, just go online right now and say anything related to sexism or any, believe me as an online person myself, the, the, I on mainly on YouTube, that's where most of the comments are. The, the comments are either are almost always, uh, hostile on, on YouTube. Again, there are trolls, but then there are people who are just upset. The, you know, it's, if I, in the beginning and really even today, but in the for the first number of years I was a podcaster, there were times when I thought about just giving up on being a podcaster because of these hostile comments. And so that's just an example. But my point is, is that when we talk with other people in person or otherwise, and someone else is saying something about culture that bothers us, we have to try to be as polite as possible to that person. If we do choose to say something to them that says, Hey, I don't, I didn't like what you just said. We, we have to give that person the benefit of the doubt, uh, extend grace to them and, 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 you know, uh, understand that they're trying their best. And maybe they said something ignorant. Maybe they said something hurtful. Maybe they said something, um, hostile or even overtly ups- upsetting or uh, overtly hurtful, purposely hurtful. But if we're going to move forward, the fastest way is to try to be courteous to each other as we do this. And in today's world, it's it's so hard to find that sort of thing. Honestly, the what I turn to in my mind are that are courteous conversations that actually are helpful conversations are conversations that I witness in class as a professor there at Antioch university in our program, we, you know, have a variety of students. And whenever we talk about culture, there's a variety of point of views. You could say that it's definitely left leaning, but, you know, I know that there are conservative or, or at the very least moderate liberals in, in our program uh, and just flat out Republicans and flat out like um, mainstream Christian, evangelical Christian people uh, to name a f- just, you know, a few of the possible identifications that people have. But my point is, is that when in class, when I see students engage in discussions with each other and with me, I see that courtesy being given to each other, something that I don't often see in the real world outside of classroom, uh, even in in person conversations, uh, even in my own conversations. I, I get triggered sometimes and can fly off the handle at people when 
they say things that bother me uh, culturally. So anyway, uh, we need to do that. Okay, so let's get to let's get to patron Maria's question here. Um, the way I like to think about this, you know, patron me is like, well, what do I do here? I, you know, I have clients who say racist things. What, what, what do I do? What am I supposed to say? What, you know, I can't just be silent, right? Cause that normalizes what they're saying. The way I think about it and the way I talk about it with my supervisees is that each of us, each of us professionals have to contemplate a number of different spectrums that are possible. There's no one way to be a therapist. There's no one right way to address a racist comment from a client. There are so many different approaches. There are so many different ways to be helpful to clients. And so what I consider it, uh, what I consider to be the most helpful way to approach the matter is to engage in a discourse with other people, engage in contemplation, and really figure out for yourself where you want to be in general along the following spectrums. For instance, number one, the spectrum of social justice and advocacy. So on this spectrum, on one one side and one end of the spectrum, you have uh, therapists who, as a policy, will only discuss topics that the client wants to discuss. In other words, if a client is coming in for anxiety, just to keep this really simple, if the client's coming in for anxiety and the client says some offhand racist comment, then on this end of the spectrum, the therapist doesn't address that because the racist attitude has nothing to do with the anxiety that the client is experiencing. You know, the, the client has a phobia about flying and then the client says some offhand racist thing about about white people or something or black whatever uh you it that you know you could make an argument that they're related but you know that it's in my example let's say it's it's not related at all well if you as a policy have decided you're on that end of the spectrum then you don't say anything to that client you say well you know, in internally, you're like, I don't like that racist attitude that that client has said, but it doesn't have anything to do with what they're hiring me for. And so, you know, they're they're welcome to that ridiculous point of view. That's that's fine for them. On the other end of the spectrum, you have therapists who actively as a policy will try to influence their clients attitudes uh, e- they're, they're otherist. I'm going to use the word otherist, meaning, you know, racist, sexist, classist, all these otherist attitudes. Um, uh, or well, sometimes it's about the self. So um, let's just say, uh, gosh, what's the better word for it? Well, as I've talked about in other episodes, I, I tend to like the word unfairness because when you say otherism, which isn't a very known word uh, and it has other definitions. But even when you say racism or sexism or classism, et cetera, it's been lost. I think the, the real, the core, the spirit of the word has been lost. I think, you know, Oh, that guy's a racist and that kind of thing. And what I think a, a more succinct, more precise, more communicative word is unfairness or bias. So, 
uh, hopefully I can remember to continue using those words. Okay. So, so again, uh, number one, we have this, we have the social justice or advocacy spectrum. Uh, for example, I, uh, one time, I I always talk about this one uh, example, so I might have talked about it before on the podcast, but I, I was talking with uh, a family, there were two daughters and a father, and the father was talking about his daughters, and he was upset that his daughters were dating Mexican-American teenage boys, and he said these very racist things, something to the effect of... Mexican uh, boys are deadbeats or they're gang members or uh, they're, you know, they're hoodlums. They're no good, that kind of stuff. And when I heard that, it, even though it had nothing to do with the treatment, right? I mean, you could say, you could argue it had something to do with the treatment because I was tasked to some extent with trying to reduce the conflict and the father's racist attitudes were, uh, potentially fuel for the fire when it came to conflict between him and his daughters. But, but really it was um, not central to the treatment. Let's just put it that way in, in terms of my opinion. But regardless of that, I did not like what I was hearing. And I made this very quick mental calculation in my brain and said, you know what, I'm going to attack this man's uh, unfair and biased attitude about Mexican teenage boys, because I just think that it's wrong for anyone to think something so awful. And, and I'm not gonna, and I know this, this is my, in my head, I did all this in my head. I was like, I know this is my agenda. I know that I'm using my privilege to overpower somebody, but I don't care. I don't like the fact that this person is talking to me and saying, very racist things about someone. I'm I'm going to say something because because I want to do my part to change someone's unfair attitudes. And so I did that very quickly in my head, and then I said, uh, "So let's just talk about what you just said there. You, you is, is that how you see Mexican American people, da da da, or Mexican immigrant people?" And he said, "Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, everyone knows that Mexican men are deadbeats and this sort of thing." And I said that is patently wrong. It's empirically incorrect. I'm here to tell you that Mexican men, Mexican boys have just the the same amount of variety of, shall we say, uh, responsibility or, or, or something as American boys, if not more responsible. I, I told him that in my experience, Mexican men are some of the mo- most family-oriented, stable human beings on the planet. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule, but after being a therapist for many Mexican immigrant families, I, I you know, I was like, I'm here to tell you that uh, if if I were you, I'd rather have my daughters date a Mexican immigrant than than date some you know privileged white kid uh, from Seattle. Not not to you know, denigrate privileged white boys in Seattle. But my point is, is that, um, you, you know, what I was saying to him was that his attitude was, was just incorrect and, and you didn't know what he's talking about. And I, and I didn't mince words with him and I had a good enough relationship with him to a, you know, that withstood that, um, overt conflict that we were having in that moment. 
and he listened to me and he and he said oh okay you know maybe maybe i'm being a little unfair or something I, I, he didn't say that exactly but he indicated that so in that instance i was on the far end of the spectrum regarding the spectrum regarding social justice and advocacy i i witnessed an attitude in my session that I felt was unfair and didn't have to do with the treatment plan really. And in regardless of that, I still uh, attempted to change this person's attitudes or his attitude. Now, now I, I could have not done that and been okay as well. And that's the point is that there's no right answer to a situation like that. It's just, are you as a, as a mental health professional thinking about it are you confident in your approach? Are, do, you, you, do, you feel, do you have a place to talk about it? Do you have a place where other people can call you out on your, you know, can you go to other colleagues and tell them what you did or tell them what you're thinking about doing? And do you have a place where people can uh, challenge you on, on your thoughts? And, and I do and have always. And so uh, that's the big point. The, the, the point, again, is not there's a right or wrong answer. And the point is not there's a right and wrong way to do this sort of thing. The point is, is do you have a process and a structure around you upon which you can uh, gain guidance for individual situations like this? Because every situation is different. Every client is different. Every therapist is different, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Number two, a number, an- another spectrum is regarding session rules is what I might call them. So on one end of the spectrum, you have therapists who don't have any rules regarding unfair speech. So they, you know, they don't have any rules. They, they just, you know, they, 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 if they hear something that is unfair, they, you know, they just, they don't have a rule about whether or not someone can say something like that in session. On the other end of the spectrum, you have therapists who right from the start will say, so I'm here to tell you right in the first session that I have certain rules about what is okay to talk about or what the, the sort of things that people can talk about here. And one of the rules that I have is that I don't allow hate speech and I don't allow unfair speech about groups, marginalized groups of people or really any group of people. And if I hear that kind of talk, I'm going to call you out on it. So again, that's a spectrum, and you're free as a therapist to figure out where you want to be on that spectrum. Maybe you have rules just for certain kinds of clients. Maybe you have just a couple rules, or maybe you have a lot of rules, or maybe you have no rules. So, for instance, I, uh, for a time with teenagers, would tell them that I did not want to hear them say phrases like, that's so gay. There was a time, probably, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, when it seemed like everyone was saying, oh my God, that's so gay. Oh my God, that's so gay. He's so gay. And, and every time I heard that, I w- it just, it really made me angry. <laughs> and so I, after hearing it a number of times, I eventually just started telling uh, teenagers particularly that just so, just so you know, just right from the start, if I hear you say that's so, I don't have a lot of rules in therapy, but one rule I do have is that if I hear you say that's so gay, I'm going to call you out on it and say that that's 
that's not okay to, to say. There's so many other ways to say what you're trying to say uh, that doesn't involve marginalizing and harming a group of people. You could say that's so stupid or that's so dumb or that's, you know, you can say a lot of things, but don't say that's so gay. And so, so that's an example of a rule. And each therapist is free to define, to, to decide where they want to be on that spectrum. Do you want to have no rules or do you want to have a lot of rules? And this will, I'm guessing, depend on the context you're in. If you work with a lot of teenagers, my guess is, is that uh, rules will be more likely considered. Whereas with my clients that I have now, uh, I, I have slowly stopped seeing... I, I've had 20 plus years as a professional, and I've had a lot of different kinds of client population. And in the past, I saw a lot more kids and teenagers... For whatever reason, now in my practice, I, I don't think I have a single teenager, and I haven't seen a kid in, I don't know, five years, you know, pre, pre-teen child. And so, but for, you know, the first 15 years of my career, that was, I don't know, half of my clients were teenagers and kids and their families. Uh, but currently I don't. So all my clients right now are adult individuals or adult couples, and none of them have the sort of uh, banter in session that would require me or even prompt me to think about having a rule about. So anyway, so you as a therapist, patron, uh, Maria, you want to think about where you want to be on that spectrum. Number three, another spectrum to think about is how much do you talk about culture? On one end of the spectrum, you have people who only bring up cultural issues that the clients bring up. Uh, and if the client doesn't bring up any cultural issues, then you don't bring it up. On the other end of the spectrum, you have therapists who, with all of their clients, will introduce cultural topics for discussion, regardless of what the client brings up. For example, on this end of the spectrum, I had a supervisee of mine who, according to them, they saw every single problem every client had as a cultural problem. So if a client came in with depression this therapist, the supervisee of mine, saw that as a, as a marginalization-caused issue. If the client came in with family conflict, this therapist said, that's a cultural issue, that's a cross-gender issue, that's a marginalization issue, it's an internalized sexism issue, or whatever it was that they decided upon. And so when he talked with his clients, he would always uh, bring these topics up, even if the client wasn't bringing it up. So, you know, for instance, a client would come to him and say, I'm depressed. And he would immediately start assessing for where, what sort of cultural experiences has this person had and what context do they, do they live in. And then he would, the therapist would say, well, over time, he might say something like, well, it's possible that you're depressed because you are being treated unfairly at work because you're a woman. You're being treated unfairly in your marriage because you're a woman. You're being treated unfairly in society because you're a woman. And that's depressing. And so uh, how does that feel? You know, does that, does that, is that accurate to you? Da, da, da. And so even though the client didn't say, I want to talk about being marginalized as a woman, the, the, ther- the therapist saw literally every single problem the client brought in as being related to culture. So that's the ends of the spectrum. Uh, on, on, on one end of, on one, so on one end of the spectrum, you have this guy who saw everything as culture and brought it up all the time. 
with his clients. And on the other end of the spectrum, you you only talk about cultural topics that the client brings up. So on this end of the spectrum, you don't deny culture. You, you just only bring up, you know, if the client comes in and says, I'm being treated, I'm a woman and I'm being treated unfairly at work because I'm a woman and I want to talk about that. Then you proceed to talk about it. But if they don't bring it up, then you don't introduce it. Now, the thing is, is that in my experience, most clients don't bring up um, issues of marginalization on their own because they haven't been uh, educated the way a therapist should be educated regarding marginalization and regarding culture. And therefore, they don't necessarily even know they're being treated unfairly or they don't they 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 have a sense that they're being treated unfairly but they don't know if it's okay for them to say that it's related to gender or or race or something and so clients often will blame themselves for these kinds of things and when they come in they don't necessarily even know to even ask the question does it have to do with context so anyway all right so number 4 another the last spectrum here is self-disclosure regarding culture. So on one end of the spectrum, you have therapists who never self-disclose about culture and about their own culture. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who self-disclose about culture and their reactions and this sort of thing. For example, I sometimes will say the phrase, you know, since I'm a man or as a man, blah, 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 blah. Or I might say, as a Japanese American, I was raised to blah, 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 and therefore blah, blah, blah. So the reason why I might self-disclose about this is because I might want to open up the conversation to culture. And by, by highlighting my culture, I'm, I'm inviting people to follow suit. I'm also modeling how to bring it up and how to... Uh, understand how culture affects all of us. Also, I might say those things to situate my point of view within my context and, and therefore present it tentatively. You know, if I'm talking to say a woman comes to me and is talking about being treated unfairly at work because, or being sexually harassed at work or something. And as she's talking about it with me, and I have thoughts, uh, at some point early on in my mind, I'm going to be like, well, my ability to really understand what this woman is telling me is severely limited by the fact that I'm a man. And therefore, just have not been through the lifelong experiences that that most women have been through. And therefore, uh, it's hard for me to get uh, and as a, not only am I not a woman, but I'm also a man and have been socialized in a particular way. And so in regarding sexuality and all that kind of stuff for, you know, j- for instance, just one data point there as a man, I've been socialized to feel proud if a, if a woman were to harass me, you know, not that I would feel proud, but the point is, is that you know, if you're a man and you're walking down the street and some woman checks out your butt and says something and says, ooh, nice ass. As a man, you've been socialized to say like, yeah, all right. And then you're supposed to turn around and go to that woman and have sex with her. You know, that, that's, that's what you've been socialized to do. As women, you've been socialized to have a, a wholly different kind of mixture of, of reactions to that in general. And so, so if a woman, a client is talking about being sexually harassed, 
I, I'm at some point I'm going to think in my head, I probably should at least uh, acknowledge the fact that I'm a man and therefore it's going to be hard for me to viscerally understand what she's telling me. And then I might say that out loud. I might say, so as a man, I just have to say that it's harder for me to, to really understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm trying really hard and, uh, but I just want to acknowledge the fact that I'm that I'm a man, and that uh, it's 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 a whole different world in the world of for for men and women regarding sexual harassment, and and so I just I just want to I just want to put that out there and and say that everything that I have to say about what you're going through is is through my male privilege eyes, you know, and so you know just take everything I say with a grain of salt. So there's a lot of reasons why we might still disclose. Now, so again, that's it there, but there's a spectrum. I could not bring it up if I didn't feel like I wanted to, to talk openly about my identities. Maybe I don't even know what my gender identity is at this point, and I, so I don't even want to bring that up. Um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, we would potentially not self-disclose. Maybe you just have a policy about never self-disclosing at all about anything, you know, and that that's a whole other discussion. But... But you need to understand where you're at on that spectrum. And again, you can't just decide for yourself in a vacuum. You have to have a discourse with the people and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So there are pros to pros and cons to either ends of these, these four spectrums that I've laid out. Um, I'm going to clump all the spectrums together and, and have one overall spectrum between being silent on one side and being active on the other side. And so the silent side is your general policy is you only talk about cultural issues that the client brings up and you don't self-disclose much about that kind of thing. On the active side, you often talk about cultural issues, even if the client doesn't bring it up, you might self-disclose about your own culture. You might, um, point out cultural issues that they're, that they're facing, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So the, oh, and on the active side, you are probably going to confront someone if they have a, a unfair attitude, such as the kind that patron Maria were talking about. So the pros to being silent are that you have less threats to the relationship and the relationship is the most important thing for outcomes. So the less threats, the better. The less likelihood of there being ruptures to the relationship, in general, the better outcomes and the better service you're going to provide your clients. Also, another pro to being on the silent side of the spectrum is you don't have to venture into the unknown as a therapist. Whenever you engage in conversations of culture with clients, it's a big unknown as to how things are going to go. And it's a big unknown in terms of how, what's going to happen in that moment. Because there's a ton of countertransference when you head into this sort of zone, uh, typically. You know, a client says something super racist, it's going to trigger certain feelings in you in all likelihood. And as you discuss it, that those, those emotions are going to intensify. And so there's risk there. As you start to have more and more intense feelings, you're going to lose your ability to monitor and edit your behavior as you go. 
another pro to being on the silent side of the spectrum is you're less likely to to pontificate and rant about your own political views. This is very easy to do. When, when you open up the door as a therapist to talk about politics and to talk about culture and to talk about power and privilege and, you, and to talk about your own identities and your own issues, then there's a very big risk of the therapist uh, ranting at the client about certain things. You know, you can imagine... Uh, therapists saying things like, well, you know, Republicans, they're all assholes and stuff like that. And if you've listened to this podcast, particularly if you're conservative, you know that I will do that sometimes. When I, when I, when the door, when I open the door up to, to culture and politics and social justice and all these kinds of things, I, and might have already in this episode, will say things that are off the cuff that are hurtful to, to certain groups of people. And if I just didn't talk about, if I remained silent, then I wouldn't risk hurting other people's feelings. So there's, there's, those are the pros to being silent. Now, what are the pros to being active? Well, the pros to being active are that you might actually, one person at a time, change society. For instance, when I confronted that guy about his racist attitudes towards Mexican people, I would like to hope that I slightly changed his attitude. You know, if he was a 95% racist against Mexicans, I would like to think that he was, after our conversation, a 94% racist against Mexicans. So if we all do our part, we can very slowly and very incrementally change society for the better, one that is more fair and, and less biased. And so a pro to being active as a therapist is that you might actually change your client's attitudes, which can be very helpful in a lot of ways that, are, that don't necessarily relate to the treatment plan. Also, another pro to being active with your clients regarding culture is that you can help the client grow. When we contemplate our own attitudes, it, it opens up possibilities for ourselves for us to grow in general. That's a big topic, but anyway. Another pro to being active with culture is you can help the client to avoid alienating other people. If someone has sexist attitudes, racist attitudes, classist attitudes, etc., then they are likely alienating groups of people, and that is going to harm your client. And so you can do your client a favor by pointing out how their attitudes are unfair and are likely to alienate others. Uh, for example, when I tell a teenage boy to stop saying the phrase, that's so gay, I, I could say, I could follow that up with you know, by saying, you right now undoubtedly have gay friends. I mean... Uh, according to statistics, you have you you have gay friends right now who are either th realizing their identity or have already fully realized their identity, but just aren't saying so. And when you say that's so gay, you are hurting their feelings, and they might not want to be your friends anymore. And so, uh, that that's a, a, another selfish reason why you want to change this language. Also, another pro to being active regarding culture is that you might 
possibly open up the conversation to ignored cultural issues. The example I gave earlier of a woman comes in to session and she says she's depressed and, and she expects you're going to talk about cognitions and behaviors and this sort of thing. And maybe you do, but at a certain point you start saying, well, how are you being treated at work? How are you being treated in your marriage? How have you always been treated by society? How are you treated in your family of origin? Did gender have anything to do with that? Well, the client might say, wow, you know, this is, I've never thought about that. And might open up a whole new area that the client never even thought was possible, which I have seen this happen a lot. I, I bring up, when I bring up cultural issues with my clients, uh, I, I can think of a number of instances where the client would say like, whoa, I never, I, you know, they'll say things like, you know, I knew about sexism and I knew about racism, but I never really thought it was applying to me. But after talking about it, it, it really has applied to me. <laughs> because the, the reason why clients will have this experience is because racism, sexism, classism, um, regionism, religiousism, uh, disability, marginalization, uh, etc. Are these are very complicated topics, and also people avoid talking about these things anyway. And so, it, it's not uncommon for people, even even therapists, frankly, to really have a very uh, peripheral understanding of these topics, and therefore don't know how to apply them to their own lives. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, possibly because the examples that are often uh, held up as examples of racism are, are in the extreme. For example, you have black men in America being killed by police officers. And this is a, a common example given in society today as a race as a as a manifestation and characteristic and symptom of societal racism against black people institutionalized racism as well and when black people look around their lives they're like well i'm not being shot by police so i must be i must not be experiencing racism Black people are not the best example to give on this because most black people are actually pretty aware of how racism affects them because it's so common in their lives. But other kinds of things, like I'll just give myself as a Japanese American person, I when when I first became a therapist and first went to graduate school and at Antioch, I, I went to uh, I teach in the program that I went to in my master's twenty some odd years ago. And at Antioch, we talk about culture all the time. And so I was asked by my professors to think about how I was treated unfairly as a Japanese, as a half Japanese American person. And in the beginning, I would say like, ah, I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced any racism. And as I've, as I've gotten older and thought about it more, I can absolutely point to different things that are, that were a result of racism in my life. Now, it, because, because when I first thought about it, I said, well, how many times did someone call me a, a Chinaman and punch me in the face? And how many times did a teacher say, well, you know, you're just, you're just a, 
a dirty gook, and therefore I'm going to give you an F on this test, even though you got all the questions right or something. You know, that's those are the those are the forms of racism that I originally would go to in my head. It's like, well, has anyone ever, you know, uh, fired me and said be, I'm firing you because you're an Asian person? You know, I'm saying ah, that's never really happened to me. So, so therefore, no racism in, in my life. And those sorts of things happened in the past, but just not to me. But then as I, so initially I was like, well, you know, racism really hasn't affected my life. But then you start really drilling down on it in your life and you start looking at microaggressions and then, and you start understanding microaggressions and then a lot of things start coming to mind. And when I think about the way I feel, so, you know, I've always been a Japanese American person in American society. And therefore, when you live in the midst of a reality that is harming you day, every day, the same, you don't realize you're in that environment until somehow you get out of that environment. And the, the example I always give is, the first time I went to Hawaii, I stepped off the plane and instantly I felt different. I felt better than I had always felt walking around in Seattle. Seattle has a S ton of Asians. <laughs> That's one thing that I've realized traveling the United States and the world is that the West Coast, LA, uh, Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Vancouver, BC, have a ton of Asians comparatively to other uh, areas uh, that are outside of East Asia. And uh, and yet, when I go to Hawaii, I definitely feel different. I feel, even though I've only been to Hawaii, I don't know, a handful of times in my 46 years, I feel like I own the place when I, when I step off the plane and I, I don't own the place because I barely understand why, but in terms of when I look at the faces and I look at the food and I, and I get the vibe from the people. Now I'll tell you, I didn't feel this way when I went to Japan. I only felt this way when I went to Hawaii because in Hawaii, these are my people. These are Japanese Americans. These are, and there's a lot of mixture of, of Japanese culture and Asian culture uh, with white, with, uh, with Portuguese, you know, with Chinese. And so uh, when I step off the plane, I'm like, oh my God, I feel normal. I feel regular. I feel accepted. I feel like no one, is, I feel like I don't have to look into people's eyes and wonder what they're thinking about me. That's the, that's growing up in the seventies and, and eighties in particular, you walk around in in white, uh, especially it's sub suburban Seattle, and you just know like oh, there's a pretty good chance that that stranger is looking at me like, is that guy from another country or what's up? With, does that guy know karate? Does you know uh, what's up with that guy? You know what race is that guy? You know there's you, you just you just grow to learn you just learn to to um, accept that and and it becomes your, your reality and you just stop noticing it because it's every day. So now are those sorts of things like being lynched? No. Are those sort of things like being fired on the basis of race? No, but it it's, it's subtle and it does take its toll and it's hard to measure the toll, but, uh, it, 
So when we talk with our clients, when we bring up issues of culture, it might take a while for the, the client to understand what we mean by this sort of stuff and to recognize the ways in which they're being unfairly treated. And, and so that's another benefit, another pro to being active. Okay. So again, just to conclude here, you can think of it in terms of the four different spectrums that I laid out as one spectrum between being silent and on one end and being active on the other. And it's up to you as a therapist, as a professional to figure out where you want to be and what kind of variance you want and in what situations you want to be more active and which situations you want to be more non-active. All right. Patron Maria, you said, quote, it bothers me deeply that my silence may have been interpreted by these clients as agreement or normalization of their views, unquote. So you're saying it, you know, it bothers you deeply that they might think you agree with them because you're being silent. Um, on, on one hand, I, I just really want to tell you, Patron Maria, to you know, not feel bad. Well, in general, I want you to not feel bad. It's not your fault that your program didn't prepare you for this moment. I'm guessing your supervisors didn't prepare you for, for this moment. And your colleagues aren't giving you any help. So it's, it's, it's not your fault is the thing. So do not feel ashamed of yourself. Cultural understanding is not something that you just are born with. <laughs> and it's not something that you just get from being a therapist. It's something that you earn. It's something that you actively build over time. I have from the time I started graduate school in 1995, I have been slowly, very incrementally building up to where I am today. And in another 23 years or 22 years, I will be further, you know, down that road. And I will, uh, I will, I'm always continually moving down that road. It's very complicated stuff. It's the stuff of philosophy the ability to hold all the stuff in your head and to know where you sit and to to know your uh, how history has affected everything and how institutions and you know it's very weird it's a very weird thing so the fact that you don't know what to do and you feel like you don't have any guidance is totally par for the course and so never feel bad for that um so on the one hand so you're saying, God, you know, I feel bad because I I didn't say anything and they might think that I agree with them. So on one hand, understand that it's not your job to change people's attitudes about this sort of thing. As I've been saying, we have, uh, every one of us has has to decide where we want to be on the spectrum. And by by implication of that, what I'm saying is it's okay to be on the non-active side of the spectrum. You can decide, any therapist can decide for themselves that, they just don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff, um, and they only want to get involved in it when it really is um, relevant to the client. Um, now, I will say that no therapist ethically can say to themselves, I'm never going to talk about culture. That's not what I'm saying, because uh, I could see people thinking that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's okay to deny culture. and I, It is not okay to deny culture. What I'm saying is, is that 
on the non-active side of the spectrum, you're only responding to things that the client brings up. But when the client brings it up, you absolutely participate in a conversation about that. A black lesbian female comes in to talk about being marginalized as black, as being marginalized as being female, as being marginalized um, as being a lesbian. And you as a therapist need to know how to have those conversations with those clients. You can't just be like, I don't know what to say. That is not acceptable in today's world. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you don't know what to say, you don't know how, you don't know how to be helpful as a therapist. You need to get training around that. That is just, you know, to be ignorant of that is akin to not knowing the DSM. It, no mental health professional should be a mental health professional without knowing how to read the DSM and not know how to diagnose. A client comes in and says, I have anxiety. And if a therapist says, you know what, I don't have any idea what that means. And so I'm going to ignore that. And let's talk about something else. Well, the same goes for cultural issues. It's not acceptable. It's unethical to just be like, you know what, I, I'm going to avoid cultural conversations. <laughs> it's just not, it's not okay. There are therapists that do stuff like that. What I'm saying is, is that on the non-active side of the spectrum, you're just not uh, inserting things. You're not uh, artificially or from your own agenda, you're not, you're not bringing things up. So I hope that that makes sense. So it's okay patron Maria, that you, you're not doing anything yet because the client, it's it, from the sound of it, it sounds like the clients were, they're upset and they're in the midst of that. Uh, my guess is, is when, when you were writing your email, I had this vision of a, of a client saying like, you know, I'm, I just can't get a job and it's bullshit because, you know, all these, all these stupid, dirty Mexicans are coming across the border and taking all of our gerbs and, you know, all that kind of, you know, some, something along those lines. Well, if someone is saying that, it's not imperative that you say, hey, hey, wait, 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 you know, Mexicans are people too and, you know, immigration is okay. You know, like, it's not, it's not your job to, to do anything. You, as a human being, you might be shocked by what you're hearing. You might even be hurt. And it might really be hard to hear that kind of stuff. But it's, it's not your job. It's not the job of a therapist to, to change people's attitudes about things and to, to, to make a, it's not a job of a therapist to make a racist a non-racist. It's, it's not. It simply is not your job. Um, now, it can be your job if you want to make it your job, but, but it's not inherently your job is, is what I'm saying. So, so don't feel bad. Um, on the other hand, what, I, what I'm detecting maybe is you have feelings about this, right? And so maybe those feelings that you're having are indicating that you would feel more congruent if you, had a, if you did say something. For instance, given my example, something like, um, you know, I, you know, this is me as a therapist, I'd say, you know, I get it. You're, you're upset that you, it's hard to find a job and that is terrifying. And, uh, job security, I, you know, is some, I've, I've had times when I've had trouble getting work and I can tell you it is very scary and it's upsetting. And, especially when you just keep getting rejected and all this, I, you know, I'm with you on that. However, you know, when you say that, that what you said about Mexicans, it felt 
it felt a little hostile towards that group of people. And I just have to say, I, I don't know if I, I don't know, I don't know what to say about that. It just, it feels, it feels unfair to a group of people. Um, and what do you think about that? You know, you just open up the conversation that way or something. So it seems to me like maybe you, patron Maria, are feeling an urge to participate in some conversations around that. And, and you're, you're, you, you feel unprepared to have those conversations and the feelings are upwelling in you that they're an indication that you would be more congruent if you actually did engage in conversations like that. But anyway, you just have to explore that with yourself and with other people, obviously. Um, you also say, quote, race was barely addressed in my program and attempts to consult with other colleagues in this area have been unhelpful, unquote. So what I have to say about that is, as I've said in other podcasts, and maybe even this one, 99%, 99.9% of what I know, and 99.9% of who I am as a therapist, I learned and developed outside of graduate school. So patron Maria, I encourage you, if you aren't already, to engage in ongoing development and professional learning around this issue to depend on graduate school, which is way too short to teach us everything we know. Uh, it's, to rely on graduate school to have provided us with enough is, is just not wise. What I always tell my students is, I'm going to expose you to, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the introduction to the introduction to the introduction. And when you graduate, if you even remember what I talked about today, that will be a miracle. But it'll be the beginning because I'll introduce you to the language. It'll be my take on it. And then someone else will uh, talk about it a little bit and that'll build a little bit. And then someone else will talk about it in another class and that'll build on that a little bit. And then when you graduate, you'll have just enough so that you can go out on your own and do the real learning, which is reading, writing, thinking, working, talking, uh, therapizing, uh, doing your own work on yourself, uh, going to therapy yourself. Over the next you know, several decades, you will be slowly building on this introduction to the introduction to the introduction. And maybe in a couple dozen years, you'll feel confident in what I'm about, what I'm telling you right now and the, the topic that I'm bringing up right now. So the fact that race was barely addressed in your program doesn't really hinder you much because even if race had been discussed, you would still just have an introduction to it anyway. So, um, and you, so, so there's that. Now, how do you get that education? Well, that's a tough one because if you said, I want to learn cognitive therapy, I would probably have some resources I could give you. There's exact trainings on this sort of thing. Well, how do you become culturally responsive is what we call it in our program uh, and others people that that's sometimes they call it, say culturally competent, but competence implies a certain end result or end point, And there's no end point to cultural quote unquote competence. So, so we call it either cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness or cultural culturally responsive um, I changed our mission statement for our and our educational outcomes in my program to uh, produce culturally responsive therapists. <laughs> um, 
So how do you, how do you do that? Well, it's pretty complicated, but just keep exposing yourself to as much as you can and keep talking uh, with friends, with colleagues, uh, with, you know, random people, Uh, look at stuff online, try to avoid the terrible things, try to avoid Trump, honestly, try to avoid the the news, because all that stuff will just make it scarier to talk about. Talk to talk to people who who are aware of things, you know, if you have a friend who seems to be fairly aware of of how they are being marginalized, you know, you have a lesbian friend and and they know how it's like what it's like to be marginalized as a lesbian. Go talk with her and say, you know, I listened to a podcast and he told me I should talk with you <laughs> about your experience. I, you know, tell me what it's like. You know, when you hear people's stories, it really helps. Uh, that's why at Antioch, we try our best to have discussions where people talk about their own experiences. Because when you just, just in terms of this episode, as I'm talking about things, um, uh, it's hard to really know what I'm talking about until you actually start listening. And I've, and I try to provide examples, you know, to, to really ground it. Okay. So, so, you know, talk, take classes, read books, online stuff. Um, I, you know, obviously you're a patron, so you listen to this podcast. I've done a number of episodes about this sort of stuff. Um, so just keep, keep at it. Think about how you're, you are being marginalized. You're a cisgender female. You've been marginalized up the wazoo. (laughs) You're Caucasian. So you've benefited that way, but you've been marginalized as a woman. And the more you identify the microaggressions that you have endured in your life, the, the easier it is to understand how everyone is, uh, microaggressed upon. Also, Another uh, thing you can do is you need to find new colleagues, apparently, <laughs> or additional colleagues who understand how to have a discourse around culture. You saying your colleagues aren't very helpful. Well, maybe you need new colleagues <laughs> or additional colleagues. And that's easier said than none, obviously. But you can find uh, or even create a consult group with people. There's also a way to have a conversation with people that invites more talk, I guess. You know, if you just went to a colleague and said, I have a, I had a client who said this super racist thing against Mexicans. What, what should I do in a situation like that? You know, if you just asked it in this really brief way, your people might not know exactly what you're asking, or they might be afraid or blah, blah, blah. But if you go to a colleague and say like, so I've been thinking about racism and about people's attitudes and what our role is as a therapist. And what do you think about, you know, what would you do in that situation? And they say, I don't know. I I don't know if I would say anything. It's like, well, don't you ever think, you know, there's a way of having a discourse that you can sort of elicit more of a discourse with people. Um, But I think um, finding better colleagues might help uh, or colleagues that just understand how to have a discourse regarding culture. Another is to find a mentor, find a mentor who understands how to have a discourse regarding culture and engage in mentorship with that person. That's largely how I have developed. I think when I think about my own development in this area, I, I think about particular individuals who influenced me a lot, people who I respected people who had authority over me and 
I would just have these conversations with them and they would have very wise things to say to me. And I'd be like, huh, okay, okay. You know, and I just slowly incorporate that into my own style, you know? Okay. So what are my policies? Well, it might be a little uh, apparent, but um, my policy regarding this is that I I tend to be in the middle somewhere. I'm not, I don't, I'm not on the silent side and I'm not on the super active side. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. And by the way, this is one of those things, like I said, that we all need a policy about. So you can't just, you can't just say, well, I'll wing it. You you have to have a general policy because it's a complicated thing. And unless you have like some guiding principles to your practice, you're going to, you're going to react off the cuff. And that's not necessarily going to be something you're going to be happy about later. But anyway, um, I tend to, uh, in general though, I tend to be more on the silent side of the spectrum, meaning that I only discuss issues that I think will help the client, but I have a pretty broad point of view on that. For, for example, um, so, so how do I say that? But it's, it's complicated, but, but in general, I'm not the sort of person that sees everything as a cultural issue. I'll just put it that way. But if if I had a client who I, I, with pretty much all, God, how do I say this in a nutshell? I would say that uh, there, so let me just give you frequent topics that I bring up with clients. Maybe that'll help. So sexism is something that I frequently bring up with my clients. Um, it's not something I bring up in every session, but I would say with a majority of my clients, at some point I bring up, I, I insert the topic of sexism. I don't wait for them to bring it up. I, I insert it. Uh, for example, if I have a woman who comes in and is complaining about being mistreated or ignored by her husband, and at work she feels like she's underappreciated, at some point I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up the topic of sexism, and I might ask, well, do you think this has anything to do with being a woman in, in a sexist society? I might, um, so I might just open that up right there, even though she didn't bring it up. And that's something that I have brought up with clients before in that way. Also, I will bring up gender socialization and sexism. I will talk with men about how they were socialized to not have their feelings. I might also talk with men about their patriarchal attitudes. I frequently talk with men about how they mansplain to people and how they don't listen and how they feel like they have to be the strong one and all that kind of stuff. I don't frame it as they're being evil men. I frame it as they're being, they were socialized to be that way, which is not helping. And uh, you know, I can think of one client that I talk about his patriarchal attitudes. We talk about it probably every, every other session. And it took me, it took me a while, but it didn't take that long because he's a fairly enlightened guy, but, but he and I will frequently identify behaviors that he and, um, and, you know, does that exhibits his, the, the patriarchal attitudes that he has absorbed from society and how they're not helping his life. Um, I might also talk with couples regarding cross, cross cross-cultural issues. 
with heterosexual couples, you have a man and you have a woman. And that's a cross-cultural relationship. You, you know, men are socialized one way and women are socialized another way. Men have a particular experience in our society and women have a particular experience in our society in general. And so a lot of times there's, there's a cross-cultural understanding that has to happen in order for couples to, to get along with each other. Religion, class, uh, disability, all these things can be a cross-cultural issue, etc. within couples. Uh, I also have talked with clients about internalized issues, internalized racism, internalized sexism, internalized heterosexism. Uh, for example, I, well, I talked with an African-American man about how he has been treated his entire life and how that might affect the way that he sees himself and his options in life. So, so there's that. In the past, I had a lot more immigrant families. And so I would talk about immigration issues and about being marginalized in America as an immigrant. So it depends on the sort of clients you work with. But anyway, all right. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. Before taking action, patron Maria and others out there, before doing anything as a therapist, you have to have a discourse with other people. You have to engage in conversation. You have to learn, you have to absorb. And then over time, you start developing principles or policies or approaches to these issues. Then you need to enact those principles and policies. And then you need to review your behavior by asking your clients how they feel about things and then talking with other peers and others about your behavior. So it's an ongoing process that informs itself. And it's not something that you, you can't, you know, if, if you just, if, if you can't just say, okay, I'm going to do this from now on, you know, it, it's an ongoing exploratory process that because it, it's so complicated and there's, and each situation is different. You know, for, for example, I might run into a situation tomorrow where I have a father talking racist crap about Mexicans. And in that moment, I'll, I'll determine that it's actually better. I say nothing during that instance. So it, it's very, it's very dependent on the situation and each situation is going to be different. And so that's why we need to have principles that guide us that are flexible to the situation. And we need to have ways of reviewing how our principles and policies are actually doing in the field by talking with others who will challenge us and say like, well, I don't know, you know, you, for, for me, for instance, that instance with the father and the Mexican racism that he exhibited, I've talked about that with colleagues and they've said, well, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I've, and, and I've been, huh, that's a good point. So, so it's a, it's a discourse. It's not about rules. It's not about, uh, firm guidelines, right? It's, it's about principles and approaches and understandings and things change over time. Society changes over time and we exist in that society and our clients exist in that society. And so all that has to be considered. So that is that. All right. Well, patron Maria, let me know if any of that was helpful. And the rest of you, let me know what you think. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com 
Also, if you can, spread the word. Do so. Tell colleagues about the podcast. It's always great when I hear about that. Because, you know, for whatever... Whenever I ask people, it's like, well, how'd you find the podcast? There's a lot of random roads to this podcast. Because, I don't know, podcasts just don't have the searchability or something that other things do, or I don't know. But if you're in the field and you want to spread the word, that'd be great. Also, I saw someone posted online a picture of how they put their sticker, their Psychology in Seattle sticker on something. So if you want to post those pictures, that, that'd be fun on the Facebook fan page. The, 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 there's two Facebook pages. There's the, there's the main Psychology in Seattle Facebook page or, that I run. And the way Facebook works is you have pages and you have groups, right? And the page is run by me. And therefore, when I post something, it gets seen by everybody. But when someone else posts something to that page, no one can see it, which is weird. I don't really get it. But, but the group is run by fans. And therefore, the groups, anyone can post anything. Uh, famous patron Lyndon moderates it. But there, if, if you post a picture or a comment or a question or something, like everyone will see it right away and you, you know, everyone can participate in that. And know that I never look at that page. Sometimes Facebook uh, sends me notifications about what's happening on that page, but I, I refrain from looking because I, I just, I want you to feel free to say whatever you want to say and not worry that you're going to hurt my feelings, you know, because everyone knows Kirk has sensitive feelings. Also, if you want to become a customer with Talkspace, that'd be cool because they're a sponsor this month as they have been the past two months, which is really cool. Also, if you know about any sponsorship opportunities, uh, let me know. Also, if you want to advertise something on the podcast, this just came to my head. <laughs> if, if you have a business or a product or some service that you want to advertise, let me know, and you know, for a fee, we can <laughs> we can do that. Um, what else can I say at the end of this podcast right here? Well, what can I say to to you, therapists out there? Because I know a lot of the patrons are therapists. What I'll say to you, therapists out there, is you are doing such a wonderful thing for this world. There are so many other jobs you could have. Uh, pursued. You obviously had some amount of privilege in that you could afford to get education, uh, a master's degree, a doctorate degree. You could have gone into a profession that was more capitalistic, shall we say. Not that capitalistic jobs are bad, but I'm just saying you decided in all likelihood that you wanted to make a difference, and that is wonderful. I know what that feels like to wake up uh, in the morning and say, today, I'm going to try to make a difference in the world. I might fail, but I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to do my best to, to, to make a positive difference in the world today. And you therapists out there have a job that does that. You don't have to just wake up and say, I'm going to try. Your job involves making the world a better place. And what a wonderful thing that is. To you, to you non-therapists out there, uh, I will say that you're terrible people because you... No, just joking. <laughs> I'm 
<laughs> um, no, you're, uh, if you're a client, uh, you are wonderful. Some of you therapists are clients too, because you're trying to better yourself and you're trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to have better relationships in, in your life and you're trying to be a better family member to other people. You're trying to create more love and more connection and more well-being. And that is a wonderful thing. I can't stress how wonderful those endeavors are. There are so many things that we could be spending our time doing, right? And to try to make the world a better place, to try to make our own relationships better, to treat our loved ones better, to grieve better, to help other people grieve better, to do all these things is, is I believe if there is a God and there is someone watching that he or she enjoys that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that sentence before in my life, but I like it. Um, uh, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Thank you.